because, you know, the Torah and learning Torah and studying Torah is really the, it's the pastime of our nation. You know, it's, it has and always, uh, always was and uh, likely always will be. And, um, you know, I myself, like I said, I, I myself invested thousands of hours in studying Torah and I, I pushed myself to, you know, to places that I wouldn't have done otherwise because you try to read a piece of Talmud and you analyze it and you really have to challenge yourself to understand what's going on. And then you just open up to the back and then it's a whole other level, right? You try to understand what is the Rambam saying? Why does he say this over here? And why does he? Why, why does Rashi say something different? You really kind of get to the kind of the next level, and then you know your your head starts to hurt from all the thinking, you know. Uh, but it, it's just we are taught to kind of when we study Talmud, we study Torah, to really push ourselves to the max. Um, and like I mentioned, this is a fifteen hundred year old document. It's based upon a 2,000-year-old document of the Mishnah, roughly, I'm estimating here. Uh, the Mishnah is, you know, it's, it's, it's the writing down of the tradition that's been in our nation for 1,500 years before that. So we're dealing with ancient stuff, and certainly the, the Torah, the written Torah itself, is a document that's more than 3,000 years old. And we, till this day, revere these books. We hold them to be of the highest importance and regard. We invest countless human hours and intellectual capital in trying to study and understand it. And you know, we have an upcoming holiday of Shavuos in a week uh, from today where we celebrate. It's a, it's, it's a national day of celebration for receiving the Torah. It's when we started getting the Torah. Uh, and I think it's just remarkable just to, to appreciate it, just as a way of introduction, to appreciate the fact that Torah study the study of ancient documents and traditions and, and teachings is such a vital part of, of Jewish living till this day. And it's just remarkable. Like, what document do you know that's a thousand years old that is studied with a, a hundredth of the intensity that the Talmud is? Yeah, but you know people that spend time studying them. It's, it, Magna Carta is a revolutionary document, plus it's not a thousand years old, 1215. Yeah. Either way, no. okay, nitpicking, right? Uh, eight hundred years old, but either way, it's that's a revolutionary document. Well, people don't study that document; they look at that document as being a historical shift. You know, the, the ideas that are that that are proposed in that document are revolutionary and have changed the world. Fair, 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 fair. That's that 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 is fair. But we being interpreted today. Yeah, but that's very fair. My point, but, but the point is, the point is twofold. Number one, it's a very unique phenomenon. Number two, there is no one, there's no document. I would say there's no domain of study that is studied with the same intensity as the Torah and certainly the Talmud is. Devotion, huh? Devotion. Intensity, well, not, not, I wouldn't say devotion necessarily. I, say, I would say intensity means that, you know, more intellectual calories are burned. You know, more, you know, the Rambam writes that he would think until his head hurts. Now, I don't, do you know anyone that thinks until their head hurts? I do. You know, but, okay. <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of a, it's, it's, I didn't say it was a long trip. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> 
Uh, but but it's, it's a unique thing. We're not used to doing that as humans. You know, we're used to kind of thinking a little bit. You know, that's what we need to kind of do our job, right? <laughs> well, you're going home, exactly. Uh, but to think so hard that your, your brain hurts, you know, that's what we're taught to do with the Talmud, to really push ourselves to the max. And, you know, you look at kind of accomplishment, human accomplishment, uh, and the great geniuses that our nation has provided, and it's just, there's, a, there's just a, you know, the, the, the numbers really that belie, uh, the numbers of great geniuses that our nation has produced that are not congruent at all with the amount of people that we have is indeed a testament to the centuries of dedication towards higher learning, towards education in general, but certainly to higher learning um, that our nation has kind of devoted ourselves to. You know, we were called the nation of the book thousands of years ago, and we still maintain that moniker today. So my question that I want to have, and I wanted to do it over two weeks, indeed I actually spent 11 weeks doing this uh, in a different in a different lecture, um, we did 11 weeks on why Jews study Torah. Uh, what is an undisputed fact is that Jews do study Torah and have studied Torah and hold Torah in really the highest regard. Uh, I'll give you a few examples. This may be a little shocking, certainly to the physicians in the room. Um, the Talmud says in the book of Megillah, G'dola Talmud Torah Yoser Mehatzalos Nefashos. Torah study is greater than saving lives. Sounds very, I'm saying, you know, that's a, it sounds a little bit bizarre, I would say, right? Because certainly we know the Torah says that the, the greatest thing you could do is to save lives. It doesn't mean literally, right? No, it means, it means literally. It means, it means the greatest thing you could do to save lives. However, what has more value? What's transforming the world more? What is, you know, a, a, a more... Uh, uh, you know, transformative study for humanity. What's going to change the world more? Saving one person is fantastic, and you saved the whole world. But studying Torah is going to bring Tikkun Olam. It's going to change everything. You know what that reminds me of? I once saw a discussion on TV where the question was or was raised: Who has had more positive impact on mankind, Mother Teresa or Bill Gates? Interesting question. I mean, it just—I just thought of that when you said that. And for for whatever reason, it was. Uh, yeah, I'm saying, but th- this I'm saying, this is like a dramatic idea that Torah is of such paramount importance that even saving lives is everything, right? But if you save a life, it's possible you're just kicking the can, so to speak, of the fundamental problems of humanity down the road. Of course, it's the greatest thing you could do, and of course, if you have the opportunity to study Torah or save a life, you have to save a life. That's the halacha. However, you know, it's greater in a certain realm because it actually attacks kind of the fundamental problems that are causing uh, pro- uh, problems to humanity, yes? I wanted to ask you, when you study Torah, what edition do you study? What commentary is the one that you study? And then secondarily, what is the most common translation that we use here? Well, I would say that the, when I say Torah, I refer to the entire corpus of Torah the written, the oral, the oral that was then written, the halacha that was then written, Talmud, which eventually was written. You know, there's very few domains of Torah that are around today that we don't actually have a physical book to study. Uh, I think in, um, in kind of common vernacular, the word Torah actually uh, is limited to the written Torah, five books of Moses, which is a grave error. 
and I'll even demonstrate this, we have the upcoming holiday of Shavuos, and it's called Zman Matan Torosenu, the time of our receiving of the Torah. You know how many books the Jewish, Jews received on Shavuos? How many written documents they received? None. None, absolutely none. When the Jews got the written documents, that's all the way at the end of the Torah, all the way at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, all the way at the end of Moses' life. What they actually got when they studied Torah was they got Torah. Mitzvahs, how to fulfill the mitzvahs, what are the rules, what are the fine general principles, the kind of more, uh, uh, more, more minute details. That's Torah. That's Torah means instruction. What are the instructions of our nation? The written Torah means there's a little bit of, a, of, of, of almost like an inverted understanding of kind of the relationship of written Torah and oral Torah. This is a critical point. If this is what we, came, we take away from today, then we're victorious in our efforts. People assume, erroneously, but people assume that the oral Torah is a way to understand the written Torah. Is what? Is a way to understand the written Torah. You have the, you have the written Torah, it's a little bit vague, uh, it's ambiguous, it's enigmatic. Well, the oral Torah is going to explain what, what that means. Indeed, that's true, but the, the way it actually was developed is exactly the opposite. When Moshe taught us Torah, he taught us Torah, which means how to live as a Jew. So he didn't say, oh, totafot. Oh, what's totafot? Oh, black boxes that are made out of cowhide, that have compartments, that have scrolls. No, he told us what tefillin is. Describe tefillin. Right? That's what we call the oral Torah. It's just all the details of mitzvahs. It's black boxes, right, with four compartments in the shell rosh on the one on the head, with four scrolls. What are the four scrolls, right? Each uh, inserted into different compartments. And then there's the tefillin shayad, which is one compartment, which has one scroll, the same four uh, part, uh, uh, segments, uh, excerpts of the Torah written on, the, on a single scroll as opposed to four distinct scrolls what the straps are made of, how this is all done. That's what he taught us. Now, the written Torah is there to service the oral Torah, not the other way around. The written Torah is there to ensure that no mistakes fall in tradition. That is indeed the opposite of what, the way we think, right? We usually think the other way around because we start from a written document and we kind of we work uh, our way from there. When indeed, if you look at it historically, it's the opposite. Moshe teaches the Jewish people Torah. At the end of 40 years, after all the lessons, all the stories, all the instructions, the mitzvahs the Jewish people get, all the way after that, they get a written document. The written document is there to ensure that no mistakes fall into the tradition. But when it says in... It's the absolute book is it? When it says Moses, and I thought this was around the time of Sinai, Moses wrote down this law. Was yeah, Mo- well, Moses wrote it down, but it was never delivered to the Jewish people, right? Moses, um, the Talmud has a, has a whole question, when did Moses write? Did he write it incrementally as things happen? They might tell him, write this, write this, write this, or did he write it all at the end? Either way, everyone agrees that documents were never delivered to the Jewish people until Moshe was about to die. So what was in the Ark? The well, they had in the Ark that Moshe had, they put the Luchos, Put the tablets, um, right? That the broke both the broken tablets and the 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 uh, non-broken tablets. Uh, plus, there are other things that they that they put in. For example, that vial of manna that was that that was you know was 
uh, stored for posterity, uh, the staff of Aaron that sprouted almonds. A lot of, they put a lot of things in there. And eventually, when Moshe wrote, at the end of his life, he wrote 13 Torah scrolls, delivered one to each of the tribes, and uh, the 13th was placed in that ark as well, which Why the Jews had for hundreds of years. Any of those <laughs> well, who says, I'm saying, first of all, they're 3,000 years old, right? So we don't have anything that's that old. But we have records of these being, these were the key Torah scrolls, key as in the ones that were copied Every tribe maintained theirs. Uh, and then um, we have records of these be- being around for 800 years later. So they were, uh, they were treated with high regard. Um, and they were used by the Jewish people. And indeed, whenever there was a question as to the exact text, they would just go to the original text that Moshe wrote. That being said, of course, uh, over history, we don't have the Ark itself, right? Uh, you have uh, Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians coming in and they're... Uh, raping, pillaging, and plundering. Uh, Harrison Ford. <laughs> uh, and uh, and, and what's going to happen? What's going to happen to you know? So so the theory is is that these things were all archived, were put away, were hidden, were buried. Where are they? Who knows? Uh, even the second. Could have been destroyed. Dead Sea Scrolls were also were gone for two thousand years. Now, but Dead Sea Scrolls don't have the same value. Remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by a sect that most everyone agrees are the Essenes, which were kind of a splinter group of the Jewish people that kind of took Judaism and forked it a little bit, right? A little sectarian split, a schism amongst the people, but they still had kind of a Torah base, and they kind of went off on their own. Um, Actually, ironically, it's one of those splinter groups that went even more religious as opposed to less religious, which is more common. Uh, but there's no such thing as more religious, right? You, you can't do a better job than what the Almighty outlines, right? We don't be we want to don't be more religious than God wants you to be, right? That's a mistake. Uh, and don't be less, right? It's the, the Almighty outlined the perfect recipe for how to achieve greatness as an individual, as a nation. When you say, "Huh, you know what? I have a better idea. Let's be ascetic and fast all the time, and let's." Uh, be celibate and be holy and spiritual or let's roll ourselves in snow to just self-flagellate no, no, that doesn't, that doesn't work you know? that's, a, that's a recipe for trying to you, have you done that? Uh, inadvisable uh, but either way but, uh, there, were, there, were, there were people that did that and they thought that they're being very pious but indeed you know where those people are today in the history? they're all gone because when you take Judaism, you try to change it. You could have a movement that lasts for a few hundred years, like the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a dominant Jewish movement. But what they did was they altered the Torah. And when you alter the Torah, you may have your heyday, but it's going to be very limited. It's not going to last because the Jewish people, we are told in the Torah, it's a prediction. Remember, the Torah makes predictions, and it's undefeated. Every one of the predictions are, have come to be true. And the Torah makes prediction the Jewish people will be around forever. And when we say Jewish people, it means the Jewish people the way the Almighty outlined. You have your heyday. You have a few hundred years of Sadducee dominance and the Pharisees, which is the name that was invented for regular Jews. Remember, if you're going to change Judaism, you're going to have to invent the name for everyone else. Uh, The Pharisees are the ones that are the Purushim. Purushim means those that withhold, those that don't follow your innovation. Uh, So they're the kind of, not the minority, they were still the majority of the people, or maybe it was kind of even, uh, but they were at odds with each other. But you know how many Sadducees there are today? No. Sadly, 
There's no Sadducees. Could it be uh, argued, they're gone. Could it be argued that if we, if it says the Jews will be around forever, or at least I guess that could mean until the world to come, which I guess they'll be there. They're, they're yes. Well, okay. Does that mean that Christians may not be around forever? Because didn't Christianity alter the Torah? Well, but well, it, great question. Yes, but um, um, yes. So Christianity. So we have to understand that there's uh, that there's a really a, a, a kind of a development of Christianity as what it began and what it evolved into. It began as many other kind of splinter sects that uh, spawned off of Judaism in the first century. Uh, that was a very tumultuous and turbulent time for the Jewish people. Uh, there's a lot of strife and internal and external uh, chaos. Uh, and that resulted in like we said, the Sadducees, uh, they were already a few hundred years prior, uh, but the Hellenists were very, uh, were very powerful at the time. The Essenes became a splinter sect, and the Jewish Christians also became a, a splinter sect, which started off as Jews who observed and believed in the Torah, just had this fascination with, a, you know, with, with J.C. Uh, and then, of course, 50, 60, 70 years later, it became so religion. So if Christianity had remained as a subset of Judaism, it would have been long gone. That uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, like the Sadducees. I mean, they were so small compared to the Sadducees. They, they were they were almost, uh, you know, inconsequential compared to the other groups that uh, ravaged the Jews. Um, there were other groups as well. We spoke about this when we talked about the history of the first century. Um, but that was a common kind of theme of the time. And Christians, or the Jewish Christians, were, were a variant of that. But they became, they totally uh, spun off to their own religion, and that's why they became very successful. They were, vi- they were not successful at all, almost, uh, as, uh, a, as a persecuted sect of, of, of Jewish Christians. They become. They open up the doors to the non-Jews. They uh, they abrogate the law. You don't no longer need to be observant of any of the laws. No Shabbos. No no kosher. No circumcision. None of that. Right. Very kind. Of very much kind of uh, honing in, so to speak, on a message that is palatable to the masses, and they become wildly popular. But then it ceased being a Jewish subset and it became kind of its own. So that's you know that's the history of of uh, of uh, spinoffs of Judaism. Either they die, uh, like the Sadducees or the Hellenists or the Essenes or the Beryonim to a to us to a I guess a smaller extent, or the Karaites. The Karaites in the seventeenth ninth century were huge. They, they were the majority of Jews, according to some estimations, were Karaites. Karaites were kind of an updated version of Sadducees. Uh, and they didn't believe in the oral Torah. Was that the yeah, it was basically they attacked the oral Torah, which is always, uh, it's always easier to are attack. Are they the ones that um, are friendly with Iran? What, is that, what's no, 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 no. So the Karaites were a very uh, a very dominant Europe. subset. Yeah, it was in Europe, of course, uh, of of the Jews. They essentially 
are very uh, similar to uh, to the to the Sadducees, kind of theologically, uh, but they're almost gone now. I think there's like maybe if you read the Wikipedia page, there's like five thousand of them. Um, there's apparently a shul in Los Angeles, a Karite shul, but they're gone. I'm saying they're 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 totally insignificant. Um, and what about the Kabbalists? Well, the Kabbalists they weren't necessarily their own religion. They were the Kabbalists that. Um, uh, you know, there were some kind of religions that were spun off by kind of pseudo-Kabbalists, uh, like Jacob Frank, for example, and Frankism. You know, when you know any Frankists? I don't know any Frankists. But Frankism, Frankism was kind of another forked religion where it kind of forked Judaism, Christianity, and Kabbalism, and all that. And it was a total fraud, and it's totally gone. Um, and I would, I would say to a large extent that the early Reform Judaism is... is Extinct. We don't have any. There's no such a thing. You know, the early reform they had uh, synagogue on Sunday, and their shuls were indistinguishable from churches. Uh, that's largely gone. I don't, we don't have that anymore. Um, well, messianic messianic Jews are different, right? To something else, but I don't know any. The early reform they didn't have any prayers in Hebrew they got rid of Hebrew any references to Israel to Jerusalem to Zion were expunged from the prayer book the prayers were conducted chosenness was exactly Jewish the Judaism when it weren't a nation uh, you know they were a religious or mosaic tradition so to speak um, they, they prayers were, in German I don't know any, any no, reform shul was, today they were self-hating Jews. <laughs> right, so, so Reform today, they have the same name, uh, but it's very, it's very different in practice. Like, I, you know, I, I tell, sometimes people tell me though, that they're Reform, right? Well, what does it mean to be Reform? What does it mean? Like, what are the core tenets of Reform Judaism? So the answer, the correct answer is, is that that's an evolving question. If you look at the original, the first time where Reform Judaism crystallized its beliefs, it's in, in the Pittsburgh platform of 1885. Now, Reform, in, a, you know, in some way or another, was already around for 100 years. At that time, it's already vastly different than the early Reform. Uh, the early Reform, I said, they conducted their services on Sundays. The rabbis dressed like priests in the in the 1860s in France, they dressed like priests, and yeah, and they and they they were they were proud of the fact that they were indistinguishable from a church. That was a, that was a matter of pride to reform, quote unquote reform. Oh, certainly not. Um, now, in 1885, in the United States, where reform had a big uh, stronghold, they wrote kind of the basic tenets of Reform Judaism at that time, in known as the Pittsburgh Platform. There is no Reform Jew or Reform Rabbi or Reform community today that would stand by the Pittsburgh Platform. Uh, the Pittsburgh Platform variant of Reform Judaism is gone. I didn't. I know this is the first time I've never heard of the Pittsburgh. Platform. Right. So, like it says, means like we are no longer a nation. Like, no one would say that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It was. It was Cincinnati, where the Hebrew Union College still what, is. What about uh, Lubavitches? They are. Well, so well, let, me, let me finish this point. Um, there are you can read it; it's in English, which is nice. You don't have to go like you don't have to have like you have to read some German, you know, kind of delineation of what of what they believed. But you read it today, and there's no one, no one, not a Reform 
a congregant, not a Reform rabbi, not a Reform community, that would stand by the Pittsburgh platform. Even Reconstructionism would not? Reconstructionism only started much later, you know, much later, in the 1960s. But aren't they similar, aren't they the most, uh, what would the word be, liberal, I guess? Of, uh, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's, but they're not quite as dominant as, certainly as Reform was and even Reform is today. What's interesting about the Reconstructionists is that the wording of their faith almost exactly matches the wording of, of, of what Rabbi said in terms of studying the oral traditions and learning what it means to be a Jew. Yeah, but really, yeah, but that's a lot of twists and but that's not immutable. That, that's not immutable. That's not like right. it kind of is what you make it to be. Yeah, but, and, and, but, but still. But like uh, just back to the Pittsburgh platform, I would I would encourage everyone to Google it because you can actually read it today in English, which is yeah. nice. But it says things, for example, we are no longer a nation, therefore we don't ever expect to go back to Israel or to reinstitute Jewish sovereignty over the land. Like, that's things that no one would accept today. Okay, but so that was... Reconstructionists don't believe... Reconstructionists, uh, Reconstructionism is, is, a, is a whole different, different ballgame. But my, my, my point is, is, that, is that when Jewish splinter sects kind of take quantum leaps, so to speak, or orders of magnitudes of change away from kind of traditional Judaism... They either kind of come back, veer back, or pivot backwards uh, and kind of join the fold, uh, or they disappear. Um, I would say, I would say, with regards to Chabad and Lubavitch, that began as a Hasidic movement. Now, Hasidism, remember, Hasidism that emerges in the 18th century, and that was very controversial at that time, because in the preceding century you had a movement that destroyed um, the false messiah. Exactly, destroyed kind of the Jewish pride or, or the Jewish... Is that Shabtai Tzvi, yes. Shabtai Tzvi Machshimo. Yes, so he... Yeah, so Shabtai Tzvi uh, is a, the classic case of a false messiah. Uh, he was a, a very young man, a great Torah scholar, uh, who dabbled, I don't want to dabble, but uh, dabbled in a heavy way in Kabbalah. Uh, he was very charismatic, traveled around the world in the 16, not on that date, in the middle of the 16th, uh, of the uh, 17th century. So uh, 1650s maybe, I don't know the exact, exact date. Was that, the after, was that the one Rabbi Kiva thought was the... the no, Rabbi Kiva was the Bar Kokhba in the 2nd century. Yeah, wait. Right. Um, so he was someone who displayed tremendous gifts, tremendous genius, uh, and he uh, was very charismatic, like I said, and he had a group of followers uh, who kind of developed or popularized the idea that he's Mashiach. Now, uh, what he did, it was kind of, in retrospect, it's kind of obvious that he was not Mashiach, but at that time, it was really a, a low point in, 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 in Jewish life, the Jewish people were very depressed. They were very, um, you know, they had just suffered kind of 500 years of exile and expulsion from various different uh, European countries. They were under the constant threat of pogroms and blood libels. They were routinely uh, uh, recipients of mistreatment in the form of physical brutality and slaughter, certainly economic marginalization. They weren't allowed to be citizens of the world. They weren't allowed to own property. They were, uh, they were put in ghettos. 
it was not a good time, uh, needless to say, to be a Jew. And then you have this bright, young, shining star, a uh, great Torah scholar who's kind of very mystical. Uh, and he basically kind of went in the world, went in, went in the world initially, he got married really young, uh, and he basically said that he's Mashiach. Uh, but in retrospect, like I said, it's very obvious that he was a fraud. Uh, he would do things that are deliberately against Torah law, engage in orgies, for example, um, pronounce the name of God in the ineffable name of the not let us say, um, uh, he would he would go around and say oh he would make up he made up a new blessing lahatir isurim right to permit the forbidden uh, but you know but kind of people were in need for a savior and they kind of there was just this mass mob following that he had and people kind of just joined and simple Jews from throughout the world like I say you know they they just joined the fray. Um, the rabbis were split. Some of the rabbis kind of were also enraptured by his ability and his oratory skills and his great genius. And they kind of overlooked a little bit of the shady stuff that maybe should have uh, advised them otherwise. Others were very, very harsh critics, but even the harsh critics had to suffer with the mob that was in support of him. Basically, he announced that Mashiach is coming and he said, oh, we're doing away with all the fast days. There's no more, no more, no more Tisha B'Av. We're not remembering the destruction of the temple. We're going to rebuild it this year. Um, well, you mean he, denou- he said the Mashiach is not coming? Oh, uh, it is coming. It is oh, coming. So, but I so, he said he was the Mashiach. Right, I'm saying okay. Mashiach as in him is coming. Okay. He, uh, tens of thousands of Jews sold their material possessions and sold their houses and started beginning this pilgrimage to, uh, to Israel, he bombastically announced that he is going to take Jerusalem by force from the Ottomans, who were at that time the dominant world power, certainly in that area. Uh, he makes his trek towards, uh, towards Israel, and he gets stopped by the Turkish, by the Ottomans, and they imprison him. But even in prison, he's allowed to hold court, and he's treated like a head of state, really. And everyone came to so him were and they kind afraid of... afraid of him, the Ottomans? Huh? Were they afraid of him? They yeah, they treat him with great respect, even though they imprisoned him. Uh, either way, pushed him to shove. The, the sultan tells... Well, the sultan was very friendly with the Jews initially. Uh, he tells Shabtai Tzvi, either you convert to Islam or we're going to execute you. Uh, and uh, the dreams of the masses came to a crashing end when Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam. Uh, but of course, a few of the kind of hardcore fans say, oh, this is all part of it, this is all part of it, this is all part of the plan, and this is, you know, but it, he just was a Muslim, and then he died, and then even after he was dead, there were some closet chests, it was called Sabbateans, these groups that actually still believed or allegedly still believed. But either way, it was, it was a terrible tragedy uh, for the Jews of that time. So he just stayed in Ottoman? He stayed in the Ottoman? Yeah, he was, stayed in Turkey. He was, he was, I think he was given a kind of a prestigious position in the court. But he was a Muslim. Could you imagine? Your great hero turns into a Muslim, converts to Islam, and says, oh, this is all part of the plan. And then you just realize what a fool you were for following the charlatan all along. Now, some of the rabbis, to their credit, from the very beginning called him out 
but their voice, of course, were drowned out by the choruses of the masses who were just clamoring for, you know, for a hero. Uh, but it was a tremendous tragedy. It really set back the Jews like centuries. Today, to this day, we're still suffering. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Ramchal. So Dan is talking about uh, teaching you guys Derech Hashem, the way of God. Ramchal is one of the great heroes of the time. Uh, 1707 to 1746, he lived a short 39 years, but managed to write hundreds upon hundreds of books. Uh, some of them absolute classics, like the Derech Hashem, the Way of God, which essentially is an outlining of Jewish philosophy. The Mesilas Yesharim, the Path of the Just, or called the Way of the Upright, which is the foundational book of Musar, of character perfection. Uh, and he wrote that book, and the greatest leader of that time, the Golden of Vilna, the genius of Vilna, he committed the book to memory, and he said that entire book is not one single extra word. There's not one superfluous word in the entire book. That's what he said. Which is just a remarkable um, praise for some, from someone like, like that. Uh, but either way, he was banished at the age of 20 from, from Italy. He was exiled, kicked out of the community, excommunicated. Why? Because he was a young man, very dynamic, great genius, who's dabbling in Kabbalah. And a mere 50 years after the Shabtai Tzvi debacle, any young, dynamic genius who's a great Torah scholar, who's a great writer and orator, who's dabbling in Kabbalah, is dangerous. Who knows? We've been down this road before. We don't even want to get anywhere near it. Indeed, a hundred years later, we have a controversy that tore up the Jewish world in the middle of the 18th century. 18th century, what would have been, if not for Shabtai Tzvi, that debacle of the 17th century, the 18th century, would have been maybe the brightest century uh, in the past thousand. Why? Do you consider the studying like the way of God not just, is that considered studying Torah? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely that's studying Torah. That's that's studying the way of God, right? Uh, It's studying studying Muslim, it's studying how to be a good Jew, it's studying what it it even means to be a good Jew. Absolutely. Do you think people's enrapture with Shabtai Tzvi had to do with Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if, that if 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 kind of finding like a uh, a hero. Yeah, um, I don't know if, that, if it was so much about the kind of a physical incarnate, so to speak. It was it was just someone who was going to kind of bring them their final deliverance that they've been waiting for. Oh, and I kind of go there. Well, I'm saying so I, very different than as humans today. We still want to be. Well, I, I think if you look at, let's say, other countries, not the United States as much, but other countries that in the past hundred years have had terrible tyrants, dictators, and totalitarianistic, uh, just madmen as their leaders, and you kind of wonder, like, why would so many different countries kind of rally behind the craziest guy around? 
Like if it's Saddam Hussein, if it's Hitler, if it's Stalin, if it's even Lenin was out of his mind. Um, but you know, there's there's so many examples. Idi Amin Al Dada, the guy was a, you know verifiably insane. Yeah, but that, and he became the leader. That's a dictator. That was all. But 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 very but very unstable. See, didn't he have syphilis? Huh. Yeah, he did, but, but he thought it was a wonderful thing. It, it, it worked, you know. This, you, you, you know, I don't. I think that type of thing is more like. But but Gaddafi. I'm saying the, the, it, it's interesting that like the people that have sometimes the ability to rally masses are the craziest ones out there, and the people that are the most dangerous and destructive are the ones that have the greatest, so to speak, skill in rallying the masses. And uh, you know, Shabtai Tzvi was someone who was. Really, I'm saying a, a tortured soul, right? To anyone to think that they're the Messiah, anyone to think that they can just do whatever they want without suffering any consequences, they're probably, you know, uh, they're me- megalomaniacs, right? That may be. And that, and, but, exactly, the people who flock them are like, you know, they, they look at someone who's so gifted and so talented and so well spoken. And then the fact, the oddities of their behavior indeed bolster their claim that they're something different, right? If they didn't behave so odd, you would say, well, shouldn't someone who's so gifted who's going to be bring our deliverance, shouldn't they be at least a little bit different in behavior as well? And the answer, we know, if you look at the Rambam, and you compare with the way the Rambam described the Mashiach to the behavior of Shabbat Tzvi, immediately you would know this, this is a fraud. And the Ram is prepared. The Ram is 500 years prior is telling you if someone tries to change one law, they are not your guy. But to the, to the uninitiated, look, the guy's changing laws. He must be it. Yeah. But Which is ironic and, and just sad. Don't, don't, didn't some Lubavitchers. Uh, so let's get to the Hasidic. So let's let, we get to the Lubavitchers, but let's start with the Hasidic. The Hasidic movement began, like I said, 50 years after Shaftai Tzvi. It began with an emphasis on Kabbalah. It began with a de-emphasis on Torah study, on rigidity in halacha. Uh, the idea behind Hasidism is let's try to make Judaism appealing to the masses, not just to the scholars. So to be a great Jew, you have to be a great scholar, you have to study Talmud. And what about the guy who's the peasant, who's going to work at the age of 12, doesn't really have very much of a strong Jewish background in learning? What's their role in Judaism? Well, should they have a role? Absolutely. It comes along the Hasidim, and they take the millions of the less sophisticated Jews, certainly the less stylistically inclined Jews, and they infuse their life with Jewish meaning. So you can't be the greatest scholar out there, but why can't you be the greatest Jew that you could be? Let's try to invest time in prayer, talking to the Almighty. Isn't that something that's, that, that, that's just the very basic of building our spiritual life? Let's invest heavily in that. Well, how, how do you pray? Let's pray with joy and excitement. Well, how, I'm not so excited in the morning. Right when we wake up, I'm not so excited. You know what? Let's wait till we're, we're ready there. You know, so let's wait two or three hours until we're primed to pray. But wait a minute. Isn't there laws about when you're supposed to pray? There is deadlines to prayer. Well, let's not so worry about that. That's what really got the movement into kind of hot water. 
where suddenly you see a movement that is, according to its detractors, diluting Judaism a little bit. Obviously, of course, it's for a good purpose. But you know what happens when people uh, make compromises with good intentions? It's called a slippery slope. Exactly. And very often it leads to undesired consequences and unforeseen consequences. So they, of course, have a very noble intention. Their intention is to really mobilize and galvanize and inspire millions of Jews that are just depressed. And you know what? Uh, spoiler alert, they were successful. But initially, it began, so to speak, so far towards kind of uh, um, this slippery slope that the, the tractors were terrified of that there was tremendous controversy. Uh, the aforementioned Gola Vilna was relentless <coughs> in his, uh, in his um, opposition towards Hasidism. He said, uh, they're not ha- Hasidim, they're Hashudim, which is a nice play in words. Hasid means pious in Hebrew. Hashud means suspect. Right? Uh, you, know, the, you, have, you have to be wary of these people. They're coming and they're saying suddenly that the, yeah, the time doesn't matter to them. So, for example, they would say in their responses to the Hasidim, they would say, oh, we have to wait till everything is kind of appropriate. Right? Don't pray until you're ready to pray, even if it means going beyond the official, rigid halacha of the deadlines of prayers. Oh, so let's wait till we're ready to blow shofar. Let's blow shofar on Passover. You know, instead of, we're not ready on Rosh Hashanah. Let's wait till we're ready. That, that was kind of the response. Or let's eat matzah on Sukkot. That's when we're ready for it, you know. Because if you go too far, so to speak, to the spirit of the law, and you pivot too far away from the letter of the law, you'll spawn off your own religion. And that's why Hasidism started off, uh, you know, v- you know, very, yeah, in, 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 you know, very controversially. It, it was um, started by the Baal Shem Tov. That's right. Um, of the earliest of the Hasidic uh, disciples of the Baal Shem Tov is the founder of Lubavitch, but mem- mem- many dynasties were founded. Rabbi, Rabbi they're all called Schneerson. Um, uh, the first one is, was known as the Rav, or the Balatanya, who wrote the Tanya, which is the foundational book of Hasidic thought. Um, he indeed tried to make overtures of peace with the, with the Vilna Gon. He actually came to Vilna, uh, and he requested an audience with the Gon of Vilna, and he was refused an audience. He claimed that had he been able to talk, to uh, the Vilagon, he would have allayed all his fears. Uh, who knows? Either way, the third uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe, who's known as the Tzemach Tzedek, uh, in retrospect, he said that, you know who saved Hasidism? The Gon of Vilna. Because if not for his opposition and kind of reigning in the extremities of the changes that the Hasidim brought, it would have become its own religion. Was a uh, outcropping of the Orthodox because the Orthodox were not rigid enough. No, that's absolutely not. Uh, no, it's it was. Well, I don't know what I don't know. The term Orthodox comes much later. Um, the, the idea of Orthodox didn't that that name didn't appear till the 19th century. But I, I assume you mean the observant Jews of the time. Uh, no, so it was it was almost exactly the opposite. Uh, so they emphasize. 
and, and in, they emphasize the parts of Jewish life that are much more kind of communal, much more uh, less individual, so to speak, uh, that are much more inspiring, like prayer, like joy on Shabbat. Let's get together and have a tish. That's still a foundational element of Hasidic life today. A tish, tish means a table in Yiddish. Uh, let's have it. What's a tish? A tish means on Friday night, after you have your meal in your, with your family, you come to the synagogue and you have a collective meal together. All the Hasidim with the Rebbe, with the, with the teacher. And they sit and they sing. It's an amazing experience. If you could go, you could go to Israel and can see a tish, it's, a, it's something entirely different. You don't see, like, it's a brand new innovation in Jewish life. The Rebbe is sitting there dressed all regally with an amazing hat and a majestic beard, and the food is everywhere, but, like, it's, it's a little bit outrageous. Like, you see a, a challah the size of half this table, two of them. And he has a knife, and he's tying the challah, and he's making the blessings, and all the all those Hasidim are watching, and it's like a it's an inspiring event. And then he goes like this with his hand, and instantly everyone knows what to do, and they all start singing a song, and everyone's singing together, and everyone feels united, and everyone's inspired. And then they the Rebbe cuts food, and he passes the food out, and everyone gets the food. And to us, you're like, oh my goodness, everyone's passing food with their hands, and every all your food's been touched by a thousand people. Whatever, okay. <laughs> but you go there; it's it's a it's it's a dramatic experience. And they do it every week, and they do it every week, and it's unbelievable. And you know, the Hasidim fly in, the ones from from America, they fly into Israel to see be with the Rebbe. Are lights on? I mean, the lights don't; they have electric lights. Oh yeah, the, yes, so of course. So they just don't turn them off and on. That's right. You, on you the do the electricity work beforehand. You do the electricity work before Shabbos, okay. or you have it's a Shabbos clock which is a clock that automatically is pre-programmed to turn on and off when you need it. But it's, I'm saying that is a remarkable innovation in Jewish life. To take, so to speak, uh, a religion that was very kind of uh, self-critical, let's look on Musr, become a great person, let's overcome our, our evil inclination, you know, let's study Torah for 15, 18 hours a day. That's really indeed a recipe for greatness. But at that time in history, it wasn't a recipe for the masses. Comes along Hasidim, Hasidism, and they start invoking all these wonderful ideas that even the simplest of the common folk can relate to and connect to. And it was consistent with Torah, right? That's right. So, so, but at, it, at the beginning, there was a fear that it would, that it would kind of deviate too far from halacha. Now, like for example, they changed the prayer. The, the prayer book, which was the same prayer book for hundreds and hundreds of years, comes with the Hasidim and they kind of changed some of it. Who comes and changes the prayer book? Can you imagine someone coming today and say, ah, I've changed the prayer book. What? <laughs> How do you change the prayer book? Well, we changed our prayer book. Well, I'm saying that, that was controversial as well. Yeah, but you change a prayer book is not changing the Torah necessarily. Fair. Right? And they had reasons why they did everything. But yeah. the, the Gona of Vilna at the time is very, very suspect of innovations uh, because innovations in Judaism are very dangerous. When did all this clothing business come in with the black coat? So part of the Hasidic idea is creating kind of a brand. Uh, Hasidim today, like the last frontier of their Hasidic kind of life is their look. So what I mean by that is that their look kind of keeps them part of the community 
and also it's a little bit of a safety guard against defection. Because remember, you you know you want to abandon Judaism. What do you think? You shave off your beard? Your neighbors gonna think you're a shaytz, right? He's a, he's a, your, your, your parents are gonna. Everyone's gonna talk badly about you. Look at this guy. He shaved his beard. So you have to keep your beard, even if you don't want to be be religious, right? So is the beard, <laughs> which is a little bit ironic because, like, if the the look is so central because it kind of binds everyone to the community, and it's it's very powerful. It's a very powerful tool that they employed. To, to create unity, to create identity, to create a brand. I'm proud to, I'm a, I'm a Satmer Chassid, and this is who I am, this is who I relate to, this is my community, this is that they maintain to this day the primacy of Yiddish as the mother tongue. Uh, most Chassidim, certainly in America and Israel, it was de emphasized, but in America, they're more comfortable in Yiddish than they are in English. Uh, because you know what happens? It becomes harder and harder to leave. It's like a, it's like a more of a moat, so to speak, around the community to ensure that they remain loyal to Judaism. And indeed, I'm saying that's that was the idea. And if you look at kind of the trends of assimilation of 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 even conversion to Christianity in the 19th century, the communities that were heavily influenced by the Hasidim have a much lower rate of recidivism, of, of adoption of other religions, of abandoning of their own religion, and that's, you know, arguably, not arguably, I think it's, it's undeniably due to the Hasidic influences. Yeah, but they pay a very high that? price for it. It's like an Amish, like half the way to what Yeah, Amish I was going to say there. the Amish are similar. Yeah. If you withdraw from society in a world way, you don't speak English or prefer not to speak one you dress with Right, but, 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 but think about the calculations, right? As a nation with a universalistic vision, with a plan for mankind, with, a, with the ideas of tikkun olam as, as, as being our national responsibility, you know, perhaps you're willing to forfeit a little bit of being part of the nation's in order to ensure that you don't lose your status as a distinct nation. Uh, and indeed, you know, what happened to German Jewry? What happened to French Jewry? The Jews that were not influenced by the Hasidim, and if you actually look, you know, the, the Jews that were more intellectually inclined were the ones that were less drawn to Hasidim, Hasidism. But what happened to them in the 19th century? Do you know what happened to them? Mass conversions. Hundreds of thousands of Jews converted to Christianity, Jews abandoning Judaism in alarming rates, so much so that in the 1860s in France, the amount of Jews that were Shomer Shabbos, that were observant of Jewish law, was less than 1,000, which is un- unbelievable. The whole country? The whole country, that's right. It was economic survival? Well, I'm saying, it's, if you look at all the, all the factors that kind of contributed to that, you have the emancipation, the, first of all, the Enlightenment, and then the emancipation of Jews. And Jews, like, instantly have 800 years of mistreatment and alienation removed. And, of course, what happens? You're going to come to your university, finally granted admission to university, and you're going to come there with all your kind of religious baggage? No, you kind of meet them halfway, right? You know, I'll shave off my beard, I'll stop speaking Yiddish, I'll abandon the book a little bit, and kind of I'll meet the, the general world halfway. But once you make 
concessions, major concessions, you know what eventually happens? They get totally gone and totally lost. Oh yeah, what happens? You know, you have people like Karl Marx. Karl Marx would have made, might have made a very fine uh, Jewish scholar. Well, he had a fantastic beard, right? Majestic beard. <laughs> but uh, he's someone who, at the age of six, his parents converted him to Protestantism, and he hated Jewry, even though he himself was a Jew, right? Because remember, you can be baptized a thousand times. You'll get wet. You'll stay Jewish. Right? So he's baptized as a young boy, and he grows up with a hatred of Judaism. Well, why do you have to be baptized? Why, why all of that? What happened to you know, the idea of the uh, class struggle? You could be Jewish and you also have a... Well, the answer is, is because his, his grandparents, by the way, on both sides were very respected rabbis. You know what they feel? Imagine what kind of misery they feel that like they dedicate their lives towards Judaism and Torah, and their kid, grandchild hates Jews? And was almost anti-Semitic? What does it feel to them? But what happens? You make your concessions. And you say, oh, okay, well, we'll give up this, we'll give up that. But we'll gain acceptance. That's very dangerous because, like I said, it's a slippery slope. Um, Hasidism, to answer the question that was asked like 17 or 25 minutes ago, Hasidism started off kind of on this, what its detractors feared was a rocky road or a dangerous path towards kind of becoming its own religion. Uh, it was kind of kept in the fold by the opposition and they kind of balanced it out and that's why they were so successful. Um, Lubavitch Chabad is a, uh, within Hasidism itself, every kind of region, every community had its own spin on Hasidism. So uh, dynasties were established the most famous, of course, is probably Lubavitch, or known as Chabad. The word Chabad, by the way, is an acronym for Chachma, Bina, and Das, which stands for wisdom, insight, and knowledge. Because of all the Hasidic movements, the most, at least initially, the most intellectually driven was Chabad. Indeed, like I mentioned, the foundational book of Hasidic thought is the Tanya, which is written by the first Lubavitch Rebbe, uh, and indeed, they, uh, till this day, have a higher emphasis on ideas uh, more than the rest of the Hasidim. Uh, that being said, that's, you know, the kind of the Misnagdim, which is the name that was invented for those that rejected Hasidism in the 18th century, uh, which I would say today kind of is in the yeshiva movement, uh, they obviously value Torah study uh, more than anything else, uh, and indeed, they're, so to speak, the, uh, in, the intellectual, or at least the spiritual heirs of the, I would say, the original uh, response to Hasidism, which is like, let's focus on halacha, let's try to find our inspiration from the text of the Talmud, the text of the Torah, and let's, like I said, focus on the intellectual, the wisdom aspects of uh, of, of Judaism. Now, that being said, Hasidism today, we'll get to Chabad in a second, where Chabad today is. Hasidism today, um, the various Hasidic dynasties are very, very similar, almost indistinguishable. Um, they still have, like I said, you, if, you're, if you're a part of a certain Hasidic dynasty, you'll kind of have an affinity towards that Rebbe, but it doesn't mean you'll, doesn't mean you'll you know, it doesn't mean that you're kind of a distinct sect unto yourself. 
they're almost indistinguishable. But you'll you maybe you'll you'll study your rebbe's and and his dads and their dad and kind of the da- their dynasties, their 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 sfarim, their 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 Torah writings. You'll send your kids to their schools, but it doesn't mean that you kind of wanted to marry or anything like that with other groups. Um, myself, I'm a little bit of a mixed blood or a hybrid. Uh, my mother's family, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I really come from both extremes, right? My father's family is from a Litvish, or Lithuania, Lita, Lit, Lit, what's known in, in Hebrew as Lita, or Lithuania, was the epicenter of the non-Hasidic movement or the Misnagan movement. That's where, like, Vilna is in Lithuania. That's where the going to Vilna was. That is the, you know, the, you know that's, that's where the yeshiva movement, the Musser movement kind of uh, was a counterweight to Hasidism, right? Musser. What's, what's, what's Musser? Musser is about working yourself and you're a nothing, right? What does that word mean, Mus, yeah. Musar means uh, to, um, uh, it means like rebuke but it's referring to self-rebuke as a way of kind of self-criticizing yourself to become greater, to work on your character, work on your character flaws, to work on your personal greatness. Uh, you know, to, the great Musser teachers were the ones who were able to create a, uh, a catalog of all their positive character and all the negative character and would fix everything and be very self-critical and, you know, and, and, and would exercise self-control in ways unimaginable. Like we're telling the story about Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and the cigarettes. Where he said, I'll, I'll, I'll go and I'll walk in the middle of the night in the cold to get the cigarettes, but then I'll get there and I won't buy the cigarettes and I'll go back home and I'll kind of work on myself. You know, that idea. Um, but that, of course, is, 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 uh, is displayed in the, uh, in, the, in the Lithuanian world. My grandfather was born in Germany, but he went to yeshiva in, in Poland, but near Lithuania. In, in the great Lithuanian yeshivas. My grandmother grew up in Slabotka. Slabotka is the major city. Uh, it's, it's the suburb of Kovna, which is the major city of uh, Lithuanian Jewry. No, Lubavitch is in, in White Russia. Kovna, no, Kovna is in Lithuania. It's pronounced Kornas or something like that. In, in Kaunas. Kaunas, thank okay. you. But Kovna, is the, that's the, the name, the Jewish name that it was given. Uh, so that's from, from my dad's side, uh, his two parents. My mother's side, that's from like Hungary and Romania, which was really uh, uh, ground zero for, uh, for Hasidism. Uh, there in Poland, like I said, uh, uh, Lubavitch was, was uh, dominated uh, white Russia, but kind of all those parts of, uh, of Europe were, um, uh, were you know, really... Um, Affected in a positive way by Hasidism, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mix uh, so of those two. So not a person belong to Hasidism. It's like almost ex- geographical Exactly, exactly. And you know, places like France and Germany that didn't have kind of a successful response to the changing tides and the changing atmospheres and attitudes towards Jews of the time, indeed lost most of their Jews. Like I said, France lost almost all their Jews. Um, Germany, of course we know, Germany was the most uh, assimilated. Um, uh, that, that's where the Jews really in mass uh, rejected Judaism. Remember, it didn't really re- reject, it, wasn't a, it was a tacit rejection. But they just embraced the greater world uh, and indeed left Jew, Jew, their Judaism behind. Jews are leaving France right and left. 
Well, now, but now France has a very strong Jewish community. They're mostly Sephardic. But they're mostly Sephardic, that's right. I didn't know that. They're imports. So, is there a lot of difference now between like Chabad and like your So, so Chabad, I would say, is the one Hasidic movement that is very different than the rest of them. Um, They have... um, They have... It's a little bit of a tragedy, I I think, uh, because they began, so to speak, like I mentioned, as the most kind of intellectually oriented Hasidic movement. Uh, They had a belief, a tradition, um, for centuries already, that there are going to be seven Chabad Rebbe's. The last one of them is going to be the Mashiach. In the 1950s, the last one assumed the leadership of Chabad. He didn't have any kids. He was a great Torah scholar and a great Jewish leader. Um, He married his cousin. His father-in-law was Schneerson, and he's Schneerson. Um, And... They didn't have, he didn't have any kids, and he died in 1994, and really leaving the movement leaderless. Uh, but indeed, they're not leaderless. They still kind of look at their deceased Rebbe as their leader, despite the fact that he's really he's been dead. Unfortunately, some of the Lubavitch kind of people that were committed to the idea of the Rebbe Mashiach, when he died, they said, oh, that's all part of the plan. For example, like you've heard this before. <laughs> it's 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 tragic. It's it's really terrifying. Uh, for example, I'm telling I've seen these things today. Like today, like there are pamphlets that are published, tens of thousands published every week of insights from the Rebbe, but the way they label him is that as if he's still alive. So what do they think? Do they think he's going to rise from the dead or what? Wow. The way they describe, I'm saying it's it's it's. You know, it's it, it's there's this like a, a like a cult mentality. Like for example, they uh, uh, they they fax people fax questions to him. There's a fax machine by his gravesite where people fax their questions, and they kind of hope to get a response. Uh, the Rebbe used to give out dollar bills, right? Yeah, I, always used to give out dollar bills. You watch videos of him giving dollar bills. Now they have someone behind his stender, like hiding behind a stender, and people go and he stender is his lectern. There's a guy hiding there. And people go as if they're going to the Rebbe to get a dollar, and he slips dollars through the crevices as if they're getting it from the Rebbe. Like it's it's really bizarre. Um, they have these singings. They have the. It's really sad, right? Uh, they have these songs that they sing for the Rebbe every day, like before Mincha, before their prayer. They have five minutes of of singing, which means there's a song. You you, know, you did watch videos of it. He should live, our master. Our um, our influencer, Moreno, uh, our our uh, our awe, our uh, Rabbeinu, our teacher, Melech Hamashiach, the King Mashiach, he shall live forever and ever. That's what they sing to to the deceased Rebbe. It's um, where are the other rabbis of the world as it relates to this? Yes, so there were there were very very harsh critics of the Rebbe even in his lifetime uh, because. There were, you know, this 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 messianic fervor was already there when he was alive, and he kind of encouraged it, or certainly didn't kind of uh, quell it. Uh, 
for example, he would get up and give lectures and say, Mashiach is right here with us, and his name is Menachem, which is his own name. Like, and he would kind of like, you know, like, oh, like kind of lead them to kind of go, and they would sing, they would sing that uh, when he was alive. Uh, and then he had a stroke, and he died. And it's, he was a great leader, um, but he died. And, and he never and, claimed to be the Messiah, right? Well, I don't think he ever he claimed say, officially. I, I so, so, so his adherents today, the ones that still believe that he's Mashiach, so many of them, to the credit, and certainly some of the leaders of, of Chabad, they realize the danger that Chabad is kind of going, uh, you know, we've seen this before, it, does, it doesn't look good. Um, so they, they are trying to moderate the, the, the message by saying, listen, the Rebbe was fantastic, he was a great leader, his influence is still felt today, he's a great Torah scholar, but we have to move on. And it's very dangerous for a new generation to be brought up with the idea that someone who died in 1994 or 93, whatever it was, is still alive, is still giving you dollar bills, is still answering your questions, is we still sing to him, etc. They have a I, in, in every state but one. They have them all country. over, all, most major cities. North Montana, So I met someone a few months ago. There were two Chabad rabbis that were from Israel that came to Houston to raise, raise funds. Um, Great. So they go to Rabbi Wender, who's the rabbi of our shul, and they get a letter to say, because if you have someone raising money from outside, who knows who this guy is? So he vets them, so to speak. He does the due diligence. He vets them to make sure that they're okay, like they're not just raising money to line their own pockets. And indeed, these guys have a, they have a chesed house. They have a kindness, uh, hospitality house. And they put on tefillin for the soldiers. They dance with them. Great. So he gives them a letter, gives them a nice check. So these guys came to me while I was mill studying with them. I said, I'm Mil, we'll, I'll talk to you guys in a little bit. And I went to Rabbi Wender. I said, do you know if these guys are Messianic? He's like, I didn't even think to ask them. Like, are these Messianic? Like, Messianic strays, like people that actually believe that the dead Rebbe's Mashiach, right? Okay, so unbelievable. Messianic in the Rebbe sense. Yes, the, yes. Yeah, well, it's, you know, dead heroes, right? Right. right? <laughs> I'm saying we've seen this world before, like Janet said, like it's terrifying. So I asked over Wender, did you, did you verify this? So he says, no, I didn't even think to ask. I said, I'm going to go over to them and ask them. So I said to them, Hevra, I spoke to them in Hebrew, I said, you guys, uh, I have a quote, just one question. Do you believe that the Lubavitcher Rebbe is Mashiach? And they said to me, yes. I said to them, do you realize how terrifying that sounds to me? Our Jewish brothers... Right? Our fellow religiousists, religionists, are walking around with this notion that a man who died more than 20 years ago is either alive or, the way they, the way they phrase it, that they're waiting for the revealing of the Mashiach. And this is crazy. It's insane. And it is rife. I went to our, back to Rabbi Wender and I told him, he's like, I would have never given them so I told my head, I said, listen, I'm going to give you guys a donation, but only on condition you promise me that you're not using it for any education. Just like buy donuts for soldiers. Because I don't want people to be taught, Jews to be taught that some, Rebbe's, some, some dead Rebbe is, is Mashiach. But, but to, to, and that's what they believe, and I asked them, they told me that. Do, well, do a lot of the ones, because like we were talking about, they're all over the country, and they seem to be a fairly thriving... Um, 
They are a very powerful and a very dedicated. I met people. Does Rabbi Traxler believe? You ask him. Don't don't ask me. I never asked him that. Go ask him. Ask him if he believes the Rebbe's Mashiach. I don't know. I I asked these guys. I I don't know. I never asked him. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I, maybe I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. I hope he wouldn't. I, I think it's I think it's very dangerous. I think it's 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 I think it's it's absolutely terrifying. You tell me. We have had this in history where it's a great Jewish leader, or arguably a, a impactful, influential Jewish leader, who's dead, whose adherents thought he's Messiah. When he died, they weren't willing to relinquish uh, that belief. They weren't willing to admit that maybe they were wrong. And um, and they maintain that I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, this is absolutely terrifying, but it's true. Even if people are scared of talking about it, it's true that there are some very extreme Chabad Messianic people that believe that the Rebbe was greater than Moses. I met people like that. I, I talked to people like that. Rebbe is greater than Moses. There's even people that talk about the Rebbe in uh, in divine terms, which is. Absolutely terrifying. And they say, well, a, a, a teacher is a representative of God, and the greatest teacher we've ever had is the Rebbe, and therefore, if you look at this, you're looking at God. I've seen Every that. Time which is. Media shows some Jewish holiday happening. It's always the Hasidic Jews that are shown. Well, maybe because of the non Hasidic Jews, you wouldn't realize that they're Jews, right? They're not. Uh, not evident. <laughs> Listen, but Hasidic, Hasidic Jews are great Jews. All Jews are great Jews. However, when you take a belief and you, you, you pervert it and you change fundamental beliefs of Judaism and you send masses away from, from normalcy, from, from, from ideas, and you give them ideas that are devastating and detrimental and dangerous, that's a problem. We have nothing against Hasidic Jews or any kind of Jews. We love Jews. Just Judaism that takes turns that they cannot undo or becomes very difficult to undo, and you risk losing or at least having disillusionment of thousands and thousands of Jews is very bad and very tragic, well, and we should respond to that. that the rabbi, rabbi did not have kids? Was that part of this original plan? That Well, that, that augments it. I don't know if it was. I hope it wasn't delivered, but, but it, uh, it, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't help the problem where there's no, there's no possible successor. No, no, but wasn't, didn't you say he was the, supposed yeah, to be the Well, that's what they believe. So if you have so a few hundred years of beliefs that are pent up, so to speak, it's very hard so I would assume to address those. deliberately didn't have kids. I hope not. I'm saying it's a mitzvah to have kids. Okay. I hope you wouldn't deliberately refrain from doing a mitzvah. What's the first mitzvah we're um, But it does kind of lend fuel well, to the fire. Married, oh, so you know. maybe he no, I don't imagine that he would, that he would have done that. But, um, uh, but we are living in a reality today that this is undeniable. As much as people don't want to talk about it, that there are there are large swaths of Jews that believe that a dead man is either alive, is God, is a representative of God, is greater than Moses, is the Messiah, will be the Messiah, is not dead, will be coming back. That is real and terrifying. Go ahead. No inappropriate questions. Would 
would not the same criteria apply to this rabbi that Jews apply to Jesus and say he did it's, not it's, <coughs> the Messiah because there's no peace, yes. there's no temple? Well, so why would that, would that, is that an unreasonable It's not unreasonable, and the comparisons are uncanny. Uh, And and it's heavily implied in everything I've said now. We've been down this road before, um, and that's indeed very dangerous. Um, That being said, like, if you want to argue with a believer that's not using any rational arguments to substantiate the idea, you won't get very far. I'll give you an example. There are books written by believers of this nonsense that the Rebbe's Mashiach, he's alive, all that nonsense, that kind of try to prove it, right? But they don't use the normal methods of argumentation. They don't actually evaluate the sides equally. It's indeed intended to prove, come hella high water, that the Rebbe's Mashiach. So they'll find arcane sources that no one's ever heard of. And indeed, the sources that everyone has heard of are the ones that de-emphasize. That de- I'll give you an example. The, Ram, the Rambam, in the Laws of Mashiach, he tells us the story of Bar Kochba and Rabbi Tiva. Bar Kochba was a great Jewish leader, a great Torah scholar, a great warrior, a great fighter for the Jewish people. The Rabbi Tiva thought he was Mashiach. Wait, what year was this? 132 was the Bar Kochba revolt. He revolted against the Romans, managed to uh, establish Jewish sovereignty over Israel for a couple of years, Rabbi Hiva thought he was Mashiach. Says the Rambam, once he was killed in his sins, it became clear to everyone he wasn't Mashiach. Um, what does that mean, killed in your sins? Well, because we know that he, he started sinning. In fact, we know he started killing rabbis, like his own uncle, Rabbi Lezer Hamudai, oh, was, uh, was uh, he suspected that he was a traitor, so he killed him with his own hands. Uh, he started telling God, listen, don't, don't help me. I don't need your help. Just don't help my enemies. He, he gained arrogance. And he was killed. The Romans killed him. So Raman says he was killed in his sins. Kind of ta- tells about his history that he kind of went awry. And it became clear to everyone he's not Mashiach. But, um, so what do we see? See, if you're dead, you're not qualified, right? So literally, when I spoke to those two guys who came from Israel, uh, I asked them to believe the Romans Mashiach, I say, they said, yes. I say, why would you do that? They say, well, who's more qualified? The answer to who's more qualified is every single Jew that's alive. Because the very first requirement is to be alive. <laughs> right? I, I, I didn't tell them that, but I was, I was, so, I was so flabbered. I was, you know, I, I, the incredulity in my face to actually they say, yes. You know, who's more qualified? Um, but the, the correct answer is every single Jew that's alive. And by the way, once we're dealing with dead people, remember, if the entire, uh, uh, the entire body of, of all, humans, all Jews that have ever lived, if that's potential candidates, why do we go to a Rebbe to live now? Why don't we go to, to, to the Rambam as a candidate, to Rabbi Kiva as a candidate, to Moshe as a candidate, to Ezra, to Abraham. These are all better candidates. But no, that in order to substantiate, they say, well, he was greater than Moshe Rabbein, which is obviously insane, right? To so say why that. Do we need well, we, we need someone because that idea kind of represents someone who's going to be the leader of the Jewish people, bring, bring us back to Israel, rebuild the temple, um, uh, bring the Jews back to Judaism, bring the Jews back to Israel. You know, it's. it's not going to happen through a human. 
Well, it's well, it's it's going to happen. It's 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 of course shifts in history are not all about one. Yes, of course, but it's 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 the Messiah is going to be someone who is going to have the benefit of having two thousand years of Jewish exile and Jewish change and Jewish development, bringing culminating uh, at the end towards so to speak the final the final mile as it's known in the industry. Right? It's just the final mile. Right? So of course he's not going to be someone. Uh, who's as great as Moses in prophecy, right? Uh, but uh, is someone who's going to transcend, uh, who's, he's going to transcend um, uh, his peers, certainly, and going to be a great Jewish leader. Uh, but it's going to be built upon all the contributions of preceding generations. Is the Mashiach not going to be, though, somebody of a Maybe I, I would I would imagine it will be someone who kind of is able to converge everything, right? Someone who has Torah and greatness in one in one man. But either way, my point is is that the Ram says that what disqualified Bar Kokhba was the fact that he died. So if you were a Lubavitcher who believed the Rebbe's Mashiach, you say, well, he was killed in his sins. If he only died of natural causes, it's different. Yeah, okay, fine, you know. But that's just that's an example of someone not really willing to treat. The, the issues on merit, but rather is committed to, uh, one, to one side of the argument and will do everything to defend that, irrespective of how uh, distant that is from... He's not going to die? Huh? Well, after he fulfills the task, and the realm outlines the six or seven tasks that he needs to do. Bring Jews back to Israel, bring Jews back to Torah, rebuild the temple, reinstitute sacrifice, reinstitute uh, a Jewish uh, jurisprudence over the land, these are very clear-cut initiatives that the Ramam a thousand years ago wrote for us. We just follow his, you know, he was the one who codified Jewish philosophy. Well, we are closer than we've been. We have six million Jews living in Israel. Uh, fair, fair, fair. But if you look at 200 years ago, there were maybe a couple of thousand Jews living in Israel. Now there's six million Jews living in Israel. So we, so we, maybe, I agree we're not there. Uh, and, but the point is, is that at least we could kind of make out a little bit. We could, we could fantasize about how it could happen. But, but, but Rabbi, you said... And how we're told, and how we're told, we're told historically that the Jews are going to go back to Israel on the wings, I'll come finish on the wings of eagles, which is clearly referring to airplanes. Didn't you just say... Right? Clearly, right? People like, oh, we're going, no, but now we know. It's referring to airplanes. We know that now. Did you just a moment ago that the Messiah could die after... No, Messiah is a human. That's right. all it is. So it's a human who is going to be the leader of the Jews. So there's not everlasting life in the world to come. No, that's not the world to come. We haven't gotten to the world to come no, yet. No, but, it's, but, it's one era at a time, right? One era at a time. So um, uh, the Rambam tells us that this is a regular human. We're not looking for any sort of human that has... Uh, any superpowers. This no, is not I, the X-Men. But, but, but there's, no, no, I understand right? that there's something in our teachings about the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection of the dead comes later. That comes later. It's a different era. Don't you have to first have peace on earth for the Okay, so, you know, but I'm saying, but we can at least fantasize. We can envision a future where this happens. The Jews already in Israel, lots of Jews are in Israel. Jews are, like someone mentioned France. Who mentioned France? John mentioned France. In France, the Jews are leaving in masse, going to Israel. You know why? Because the French have anti-Semitism at levels that are unimaginable, and they are just kicking the Jews out. Well, what's happening? Jews are going to Israel. They're taking their money with them. 8,000 last year. Right? So what does that mean? It means that 
slowly and slowly, Jews are converging in Israel from all over the world. Um, there has been a resurgence of Torah study in the past 50 years. Uh, well, certainly among the nations, right? There's well, Yes, uh, but it, we'll start with the Jews. The Jews uh, have institutions now of, of, of Torah that have numbers that were never seen prior. Uh, the, the yeshivas with, with thousands upon thousands of students. I went to a shir. Well, I, I studied Torah. You guys see this, right? In a, a shir, which is, means a lecture, with a lecturer that gave a shir, a, 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 a daily teaching, to 700 students. Tell me when in history there has been those numbers in one single lecture. And in Israel, in Jerusalem, a stone throw from the old city. Like, these are things that we take for granted today, but are unheard of in Jewish history. The numbers that there's 150,000 Jews around the world that are dedicating uh, at least a part of their lives or of their education towards advanced Torah study is numbers that we haven't seen. Now, granted, we, 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 we give up a little bit on quality when we focus so much on universality, on, on quantity of, of, Torah, of Torah scholarship. But still, it's something dramatic and remarkable. Uh, someone mentioned, uh, you mentioned, uh, Sandy, that we have uh, a resurgence of interest in Torah amongst non-Jews, which is something that has not happened. The idea, uh, since maybe the times of Purim, where the Jewish people, with many people, were converting... We have numbers of people interested in conversions. You know that in, in, in Mexico, they don't do conversions. You know why they don't do conversions? Because if they did, the entire Mexico would be Jewish. What? Yeah. I've never heard of this. That's what I've heard. And there are those that theorize that these... They don't allow the Jews... I don't know, they don't allow or they, had, they curtail numbers because there is just an overwhelming... The people are knocking down doors to come back to Torah and Judaism. You're now, about there are those... Christians or? Many of them are what, what, what are, sus, what, what are uh, suspected as being conversos, people that only converted out of Judaism to Christianity uh, because they wanted to stay in Spain or in Portugal. Um, they had, many of them have had kind of traditions in their families for hundreds of years of lighting candles on Shabbat in a closet. They have no idea why they did it. Because they had to do it, they had to hide it from the Inquisition, right? You couldn't, couldn't display any, any public displays of Judaism were not allowed. So, a rabbi in California uh, say, oh, soul is coming home. Yeah, so souls coming home. That is a very interesting phenomenon that we see really reaching a crescendo uh, in the past you know, couple of years. But, but I'm, I don't know what it means. I'm not trying, I'm just saying, my, my point Jewish, that I'm saying, go ahead. Are you saying that the Jewish community? The religious Jewish community in Mexico is—they have made a decision. Not That's to what I've heard. I've heard it's that they've. I don't know. They, they don't do conversions. It's not no, not conversions. Not, it's not government. They, they don't do conversions, or they severely curtail the numbers because of conversions they, 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 because otherwise there would be tens of thousands. No, the point is like this: if you, if you um, suspect that you may be Jewish but you don't have any evidence, so to speak, or you, don't, you have a gap of a s- several hundred years where it's kind of up in the, uh, up in the air, you don't even know if you have Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, lineage, Jewish heritage, because you think, you suspect, you have good reason to suspect that you may indeed be Jewish kind of biologically, uh, but you, don't, you have gaps so that those people would convert just to cover all bases. It's called a, a gerus l'chumra, it's conversion, 
just to ensure that you indeed, and indeed, many people from the former Soviet Union, Soviet Union, they only have a couple, a 70, 80, 90 year gap in their Jewish existence, but they come to America and they're not circumcised and they don't know, there's no kind of uh, physical evidence, there's no rabbi that can testify, there's no shuls of communities that have had continuous Jewish life uh, for a couple of years. And they're, therefore, they're encouraged, some of them, if they, don't, if they don't kind of have, so to speak, the history to piece together, they're encouraged to, uh, to consider, uh, if, they don't, if they don't have evidence towards the fact that they're Jewish, but they're almost sure that they are, they would do a conversion just to cover all bases. In the 80s and 90s, when this mass of like hundreds of thousands of USSR Jews would move to Israel for Aliyah, in order to prove that you were Jewish as the Israeli consulate or embassy, Right, so that that's that's not enough, and indeed there are those Probably that not for religion, but for state purposes. Yeah, so the law of return that uh, Israel in, established um, that indeed opened the door for non-Jews, or at least non-Halachic Jews, to come into Israel, because they essentially said anyone that Hitler would consider Jewish, we consider Jewish as well for the purposes of admission to citizenship. Uh, in in Israel. Um, that being said, Hitler considered even people that had Jewish blood but weren't actually Jewish. One right. Even if the one sixteen one great great grandparent is Jewish, that would be enough to for Hitler to have a problem with them. Uh, thus, the Jews say, okay, well, we want to prevent that, and indeed, we're going to allow those people to come to Israel. But the unintended consequence of that is that you have hundreds of thousands of non-Jews that have or may have or claim to have had some Jewish heritage, and they were granted citizenship. So that's problematic if you want to have a Jewish state and maintain it as a Jewish majority state. If you import non-Jews, it becomes a problem. Why is it so popular in Mexico? Because of the Spanish? I, uh, I think it's Mexico. It's all, it's all of Latin America. Uh, I think that the reason is most likely because many of them are really biological Jews. They just don't know it or can't prove it. But they feel this... uh, One of the congregates uh, here... I won't say who, but one of the congregates traced her history back to Spain. Right, right. but, but But there's thousands of those people, and they feel, for whatever reason, this urge to go back to their roots. And that's, I, I think, I'm saying, is that a harbinger of mess, messianic oh, eras? But Who knows? But there's millions of people in Mexico. Obviously, there's a lot of them that aren't. Obviously, it's, there. yes, of course, so of course. So everybody in the country? Not everybody in the country, but lots of people. <laughs> I just wanted to point out, in 1492, with the expulsion of the Spanish Jews from Spain, which was the same year Columbus was going to come right. to the United States, so I really think that a lot of them are bio, biologically Oh, yeah. And if you listen, I've never heard a story of any of them that didn't have some type of a Jewish tradition in their family. Yeah, and we know that uh, Columbus took many, many what's known as conversos with him. We know that for sure. Uh, there are those that theorize that Columbus himself might have been Jewish, which is a little bit dubious. But, but either way, we know that he took, and thus the people that populated uh, uh, Central and, and, and South and Latin America, a lot of them were Jews, at least halakhically, biologically Jews. But they were masquerading as uh, as Christians. Remember, the Inquisition even uh, had its tentacles go all the way to the New World. So, maybe, 
Maybe, you know, there, and there was a story recently. I, I'm not, I, I just want to. I just want to put a disclaimer. I'm not saying that the fact that a lot of non-Jews or 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 uh, or people that suspect that they are Jewish come to Judaism is a harbinger of anything. I'm just saying it's arguably a harbinger no, of something. It's, it's just I find it strange. It's one thing I know we're supposed to be the smallest of peoples, and we don't proselytize per se. Yes. However, we do accept converts. Yes. So for, to say to say in Mexico there. Yes, that's why that. that's that's why it's uh, uh, controversial. Yeah, uh, in certain I communities, it, I find it bizarre. Yes, actually, it's it's yeah. it is bizarre, but there is precedent for it. But in other communities, for example, the Syrian community, the Syrian Sephardic community, they have had for the past couple hundred years very strict b- bans against conversion. Now, the reason why they would do that is because I've heard two reasons. I've heard number one is that people wanted to gain um, they wanted to gain citizenship in the United States. So they would quote unquote convert someone, but not sincerely, and then they would marry them for papers, and that's obviously not the kind of converts you want. Sounds like Texas. Huh? Sounds like Texas. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. That that, that is a, they, obviously diluting the idea of conversion. Conversion is when someone on their own commits themselves to Judaism, to Jewish life, to Jewish practice, out of the sincerity and the devotion of their heart, not because someone wants papers. Uh, additionally. Uh, there was this fear that people would just want to marry non-Jews, but just have a kind of perfunctory, uh, you know, uh, just uh, kind of an official conversion. That, th- those were the fears, and therefore they said, okay, if you convert someone, they're not welcome in our community. I have a friend whose mother converted, but his dad is Syrian. They were excommunicated from the community, that they leave the community. They weren't welcome to the shuls, the synagogues, the schools, anything, nothing. That's their tradition. That's that's their that's the policy that they enacted. That's the policy that they enacted. Say what you want about it. That was what they did, and it's obviously very controversial. Now, like I said, I said it has precedent uh, in the times of King Solomon and King David. For eighty years, they stopped accepting converts. That was because there was once again a fear of insincere conversion. Times were so good for the Jews; everyone wanted to jump on board. And therefore, they said, okay, well, these are not people that are committing themselves to the hard life, so to speak, of a Jew. Rather, we're just allured by the wonderful times Jewish people are having. Let's join, let's join on board. They were fair-weather fans. And there's a fa- there's, if there's a fear of fair-weather fans, then they, they temporarily stopped conversions. Um, a aside there, Rabbi, have you any word on the Third Temple progress? Any word on it? Well, there is still a problem with the site. We're trying to get access to the site. Um, you know, sometimes uh, maybe we need some eminent domain to access the site. Well, didn't Rabbi Kahani used to try and destroy the Dome of the Rock? Yes, uh, there was an effort. Uh, there was an under- Jewish underground. They wanted to bomb it and... Um, I don't know. I, like I said, maybe we need some eminent domain there. But I think, um, listen, you know, if I ask you guys as students of history, uh, can you envision a situation that within 50 years there's actually a different structure in Temple Mount? Is that something you can imagine? Yeah. What do you mean? Where the Dome of the Rock's gone? Yes. Dome of the Rock is gone. Well, I think you talk about inflaming the Muslim world who are perpetually well, inflamed anyway. Boy, you, you could really... Boy, One and a half billion people. Remember, there's a yeah. Say what you want. I'm just it, to 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 think as students of history that 
the Muslims or the Muslim world or some factions within the Muslim world would just would not destroy the Jews or the Jewish nation if they could, despite not being quote unquote enraged or inflamed by any tampering with Temple Mount, then you're wrong. Because we know even the Jews had never touched Temple Mount. In fact, the only time in history where there was a conqueror of Temple Mount that did not change the religious status of the buildings is the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. In 1967, indeed in June, right? June, uh, oh, indeed today. Ha, how do you like that? Today's Yom Yerushalayim. How do you like that? So today, in 1967... Forty-nine years ago today, they captured Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. Within a few hours, they gave control of the Temple Mount to the Muslim Waqf, not right, breaking a trend of of, of multiple scores of times where conquerors con- conquered that and did not change the religious status of that mount. As Jews, we, say, we look at that very positively, even as Jews who have a vision for the Temple Mount that does not include any Muslim structures. We look at that positively because when we're ready, we'll get it. We're not worried about it. The question is when we'll be ready and who knows. Yeah. Right? That's not in our hands. Or that is in our hands, but not in our right, kind of in direct the, hands, in our, in indirectly. Meantime, the Muslim world doesn't give, give any gratitude for that. Of course not. That's yeah. not the... Uh, and um, the, the media's... People are largely ignorant of that fact. But that's a very important fact. You know that, that the Dome of the Rock was a church mm-hmm. when the Crusaders uh, captured it. And by the way, it's not, it's not even a mosque. It's a shrine. It's a place where the overflow crowd from the Al-Aqsa Mosque, a couple hundred feet south of that, right? If you notice, the, te- the Dome of the Rock, uh, the Temple Mount now has two balls. It used to be two lead kippahs. Now there's one gold because in the 80s, Oh, maybe it was the 70s, or whatever it was, King Hussein of Jordan sold one of his mansions in London and bought with that 80 kilos of gold and had the mm-hmm. Temple Mount kind of uh, uh, covered in, in gold. But either way, like, that was overflow for the crowds in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, so which is a kind of plan for the third temple Al-Aqsa would stay? No, no, no. Al-Aqsa would go. We need more. We need overflow, o- overflow crowd for us. Uh, but yes, uh, we have, uh, there is copious evidence, it's an undeniable historical fact that before that place was built in 691, right, hundreds and hundreds of years prior, we had multiple structures on that very same mount. We have, it's an undeniable historical fact. We have contemporary accounts, written accounts that are extant till this day yeah. of non-Jewish sources. It's absolutely unclear. We had used to say there's no evidence. Right, of course, and that's that nonsense. Was, yeah, the so the fact, if they could destroy the temple and build their structure there, indeed, the Romans put a structure to Jupiter there, and then the Muslims put a structure to Islam there, um, we could indeed reclaim it as ours, as our own. It's been, it was ours before it was the Romans and before it became the Muslims and before it was taken over by the Crusaders before it was taken over by the Mamelukes and the Ottomans and whoever else has been there. It's been ours and we just are taking what is already ours. Um, but I think it's, very, it's not so hard to envision. Remember, Israel has total security control over the entire region. They are the, the strongest military power in the region. The, think about that. Like, should the times change and maybe there's a provocation, already, I guarantee you there already are plans in place. Uh, 
for for this to happen. Maybe it's an errant missile. Maybe it is what I prefer is bulldozers in the in in the light of day, making the march come stop us. That's what I like. Right? Not in the middle of the night. No clandestine operation. We don't need to bomb it and kind of go in the dark. It's going to be a reflection of the Jews coming back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, and we are taking what is ours. We are ready to start construction. Do, is it going to happen tomorrow? Who knows? Could it happen tomorrow? I think it can. I think it can happen with minimal backlash. Remember, um, uh, the Israelis were threatened by the Russians with nukes if they were to attack um, what's today's date? Today's the the fifth, right? So was it April? Was June June fifth, nineteen sixty seven, when the Israelis launched a surprise preemptive attack against Egypt and Syria? Do you know what the Russians threatened? The Russians threatened if you do a preemptive strike against our allies, the Egyptians, and against our allies, the uh, the Syrians. We will nuke you. At the time, Israel did not have nukes of their own, so they didn't have a counterweight to that. Indeed, the only plan for starting the war was to wait for the Egyptians and thus lose the element of surprise. Indeed, the Americans offered, let us take a convoy, a multiple, remember, the, the Egyptians closed the Suez Canal to Israeli shipping. Which is an act of war. Which is an act of war, that's right. So, yeah. right? And by the way, and it's an act of war, and also it's a repudiation of previous treaties, like in the Suez, Suez Agreement, uh, where uh, Israel captured the Suez Canal only to relinquish it uh, based upon uh, assurances from the State Department and from Eisenhower that there will be a UN contingency there, uh, a peacekeeping mi- a mission there, and, uh, and it will always be open to Israeli shipping. And then, by the way, you know what happened in 1967 when Abba Ibn, well, first of all, Nasser kicked uh, the Israeli, uh, the UN peacekeeping mission out, which is the only time it was needed uh, was when they were kicked out. Like, they were, they did a fantastic job until they were needed. It's almost like socialized medicine. On a side, right? It's great until you need it. That's what my father-in-law says about Canada. It's like, you have socialized medicine, it's wonderful until you actually need it. Uh, Either way, when Abba Ibn, who negotiated the original deal with the Americans, when he came to LBJ and said, what happened to your assurances that you're going to make sure and pressure Egypt into keeping the, uh, the Straits of Tehran and the, and, the, and the Suez Canal open to Israeli shipping, you know what LBJ told him? Oh, the State Department couldn't find that document. We lost it. It's not in our archives. We have no idea where it is. So Israel was threatened with annihilation on all sides. The rhetoric coming out of Egypt and Nasser for months already was that our only intention is the absolute destruction of of Israel and pushing the Israelis into the sea when the Israelis dug 10,000 graves in public parts to accommodate the masses of dead that they were expecting. Mm -hmm. And Israel uh, Israel was told, uh, the only way you can start the war is if we'll take a convoy of, uh, of, 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 uh, of different nations' ships along with an Israeli ship and wait for the Egyptians to attack. And once they attack, then you have a, a right to fight back. And you know what the Israelis said? We're on our own. We have the Almighty and the IDF and the IAF, and we're going to just bomb 
That's it. It's a Hail Mary. Really, it's, a, it's a, the football version of it. They took out the Air Force in one shot. And you know what? The nukes didn't come. And there was backlash. But you know what? That's what you have to do for survival, right? So who on, says, I, I don't imagine that uh, should the Israelis come with bulldozers, there would be, there'll be a little backlash. Okay, we can handle it. And later on, in, uh, five years later, in the Yom Kippur War, uh, there was, um, I don't know if the Russians threatened nukes at that time, but Nixon uh, put us well, in Nick, Nixon, uh, and they withheld uh, withheld aid. And by the way, since then, the French, the French had the French prior prior to that were the biggest suppliers of Israeli uh, of Israeli military armaments. And since then, they have not been a supplier because they said, if you attack, we're stopping to supply you. And Israel had no option. They had no America options other than a of attack. Did finally send America it. for two Nixon, months. Nixon, yes, overcame a lot of the opposition to it. Whatever. Nixon was an anti-Semite. Well, he was. He was an anti-Semite, but he also... Surrounded uh, himself with he talented admired, German Jews. He, he, yeah. he, he, <laughs> was, he had Kissinger. Well, yeah. Kissinger, a lot of people feel Kissinger was an anti-Semite. No way. Kissinger, oh, he wasn't an anti-Semite. They, he wasn't anti-Semite, but he did not... He had America's interest above Israel's interest. Well, but, well that's but his job, also, I understand. But, but they also hated him in Israel. Yeah, oh yeah, because he was a tough, tough negotiator. Very tough. Uh, and he was, you know, he was of the belief that, uh, you know, uh, we'll hold your hands to the fire. But remember, America withheld any Israeli aid after, a, as a response of the preemptive attack. It's the most justified preemptive attack in all of human history. But Rabbi, is, Nixon did overrule Kissinger. Yeah, eventually. Eventually, he sent, he sent, they sent the armaments. That's true. To, uh, to, to their credit. In war, they had such superior tanks that Russians did and gave it to the Egyptians and so on. Mm-hmm. And Alexander Haig called over a whole great big bunch of Israeli guys, and in a 72 hour period, mm-hmm. they learned how to shoot these special wire missiles, mm-hmm. and then they brought them back to Israel. No sleep, put them right on the front right. lines. They took all those tanks out. Right. Well, Haig was very pro-Israel. And, uh, you know, so either way, in conclusion, and this is not the class I was planning on giving, yeah. um, but I think maybe the message that we, that we have uh, to go into the holiday is, is that our nation uh, is a nation that holds the Torah as indeed uh, the hallmark and the goal and the emphasis and the focus of our nation. We have to be very wary of abandoning that because when we abandon that, we are really either going to head towards extinction or we're going to have to head back and the, path, the path back towards Torah uh, is sometimes very treacherous. Um, there have been many, many schisms, many offshoots of our religion, uh, and that's unfortunate because that indeed, if there's an offshoot, that is either saying one of two things, either that there are people who don't understand the big picture of what a nation is trying to accomplish, don't, don't understand the meaning behind the quote-unquote rituals, doesn't the meaning behind the Torah, are questioning the legitimacy, accuracy, historicity, veracity of the Torah, which is, of course, erroneous. Um, that's what it can mean. Uh, uh, or it's, it's just people trying to pervert and people trying to distort, and that's very unfortunate when, when people uh, lead Jews astray. Uh, we are a nation that is going to uh, always have difficulties and challenges. Uh, it's not an easy path, the one that we chose for ourselves, uh, or maybe Abraham chose for us, our forebear. Uh, but it's indeed the most meaningful uh, mission and important mission the world has. 
we have responsibility as a result. Responsibility is not easy. Of course, I would say that some of the offshoots are there to try to alleviate some of the responsibility, but that's indeed a mistake because we can't do that. There's no, there's no opt-out clause. Uh, we're beyond the uh, point of, of no return. Uh, we can't, Jews cannot be non-Jews. Like, not as people, individuals, certainly not ideologically, theologically, or otherwise. Here's, you mentioned early in the thing, when Karl Marx was converted, he still was Jewish. Oh, yes, what. yes. Now, what happens to a non-Jew who converts to Judaism? And goes back. And they go back. They're still Jewish. Which is one of the reasons why it's so imperative to make sure that the, guy, that the convert is actually sincere. Uh, but I, I think that it's important, maybe, maybe the overall lesson of, 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 of our discussion today is that we have a nation with a purpose, with meaning. It makes sense. It's logical. Uh, the, you know, there is, uh, our national mission has been outlined in the Torah, and indeed the Torah really has the answers for all the uh, quandaries and all the vicissitudes that we will face as a nation. Um, there's ways to innovate without altering, like the great Hasidism, those movements, the Muslim movement. Uh, innovation does not necessarily have to be evil, but innova- innovation is dangerous because innovation that treads too far away from Torah is going to bring disaster, whether it's in the form of, of Christianity, of it's in the form of Sadducees, of Hellenism, of Karaitism, of Shabtai Tzviism, uh, of uh, even socialism. And by the way, you know what? Zionism was controversial as well because Zionism also presented an alternative Jewish uh, um, mindset that, that, that deviated from Torah. And that's why it was, you know, uh, some Jews tr- treated Zionism as one of these offshoot uh, uh, schisms that's going to threaten the continuity of Jewish people. Indeed, Zionism, if it's complementary to Torah, if it's part of Torah, we know going back to Israel is part of Torah. But if it's on its own, if it's replacing Torah, then it's very dangerous. But indeed, I think that as we celebrate the holiday of Shavuos, we reaffirm our commitment and our vows to Torah, because indeed, Torah is central to Jewish life and continuity, and without it, we are toast. Uh, and that's my hope, my hope and, our, our hope and a prayer in the upcoming holidays that we indeed uh, have, uh, we, we, we have this touch point with Mount Sinai, where we were there as a nation, experiencing prophecy together with Moses, having an experience unlike any other, transcendental revelation where the Jewish people in their entirety experience prophecy and indeed accept upon themselves a commitment to fix the world, to tikkun olam, as outlined in the Torah. Thus, indeed, it is the time of our acceptance of the Torah. I wish you all a happy holiday, and look forward to seeing you all next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.